Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you uh, so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Bladder Cancer Achievement Updates, and this is part one of Living with Bladder Cancer, so there will be a part two as well. Um, and this program is supported by Estellas US LLC and Segan, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And also, we are doing this program in partnership with the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Net Network, and you'll be hearing more about the, this wonderful resource for all of you on the call today if you are not familiar with it already. And even if you are, you may hear some new things as well. Now, um, I just want to uh, um, identify just the participants on the call. We have over 200 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Bahrain, Canada, Colombia, Germany, Ghana, India, Peru, Portugal, and United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call as well. It is a global call, actually. And we are delighted that you've all chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Randy Swice. And Dr. Swice is physician scientist, assistant professor of medicine, committee on cancer biology, committee on clinical pharm pharmacology and pharmacogenetics, committee on immunology, biological sciences division, the University of Chicago. And Dr. Swice will be addressing an overview of bladder cancer, in the, in, including staging and grading, and current standard of care in the context of COVID, seasonal flu, and RSV, new treatment approaches, and updates on clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Swice. Hi, thank you for the introduction, and it is a pleasure to, to be here today to go over these topics. Uh, there's a lot to cover, and I have a short period of time, so I'm going to try to summarize as best I can, but I'm happy to take questions uh, at the end of the, the panel. Um, so urothelial carcinoma is the specific type of cancer that's most commonly found in the bladder, though there can be other types of cancer. Um, and sometimes urothelial cancer is called transitional cell carcinoma. There's an older definition that uh, describes it in that terminology. Uh, but these are cells that arise from the interlining of the bladder, the inner skin of the bladder, and they can form tumors that can um, grow into the, the bladder, and they can also invade into the deeper layers of the bladder. So the bladder has uh, multiple layers, starting with what, we, what I like to call the inner skin, which is sometimes uh, scientifically called the lamina propria. Um, and then uh, beyond that layer is the muscle layer, and that's the, the bladder itself is a large muscle that squeezes when you urinate. And so the muscle layer is just inside, uh, deeper beyond the inner skin. And then the outer layer is a layer of fat tissue that surrounds the external part of the bladder. And this is important because when we talk about staging uh, of cancer, that's uh, one of the first places that we look is how deeply the bladder tumor in the wall of the bladder is invading. 
does it invade just the inner skin? Does it um, grow flat along the inner skin, or does it go into the muscle or fat? And so um, when we talk about staging, that's what's called the T stage. Um, TA or T1 tumors are those that are either not invading into the inner skin or just only limited to the inner skin. Um, T2 is when we start to see invasion into the muscle layer. Um, T3 uh, is, is deeper into the fat, and T4, it might be a larger tumor that even invades into adjacent um, organs or structures. Um, th there is also what's called an N stage, and that is a stage of whether or not the cancer is thought to have spread to nearby lymph nodes. Uh, and so there is an end stage that um, is either regional or uh, distant uh, lymph nodes. And uh, then there is M stage, which is, stands for metastases, and that is for um, cancers that have spread to distant places, for example, the lungs or bone. Uh, and so the way we do, the way we obtain the staging is by um, a procedure that typically involves a biopsy, uh, usually through a scope, through a, a cystoscope, where the urologist will go in and take a sample of the, the tumor, and they will try to get a layer of the muscle as well. Um, and actually, um, there's two different procedures. One is a straightforward biopsy. The other is, uh, if there is cancer there, and they may go in and do what's called a transurethral resection, or transurethral resection of bladder tumor, T-U-R-B-T. And that's where they try to resect the entire tumor and uh, will get more information on how deep it invades because they will also take some of the muscle layer around the tumor. If it, uh, and so we also use imaging techniques to determine things like lymph node spread or even whether or not it invades beyond the bladder and the primary tumor site. And so imaging can be CT scans. It sometimes involves uh, MRI scans, um, and occasionally uh, things like PET scan or bone scans are used, but typically it's a CT scan. And a, a CT scan is just a series of x-rays that determines the three-dimensional structure of the body and can identify tumors uh, and can visualize lymph nodes in the pelvis and beyond to see whether they might be enlarged uh, and um, if they are enlarged, that raises concern for spread. Lymph nodes are a normal part of the human body, but it's when they become enlarged or irregularly shaped that we get concerned about um, whether it spreads to the lymph nodes. Um, so all that is, the, why are we doing all of this staging? And the reason is it helps us to group uh, patients into similar risk categories. So as you might expect, tumors that are not invading uh, beyond the inner skin layer tend to have, um, it tend to be easier to treat and can be treated oftentimes just by simply resecting the tumor uh, in, the, in, the, in a procedure with the urologist and do not require things like cystectomy or removal of the entire bladder typically. Sometimes they involve medicines that go into the bladder like BCG, uh, an immunotherapy that's put into the bladder or even chemotherapy that just goes in the bladder and not throughout the body. Tumors that invade deeper, the T2, that go into the muscle, often require more aggressive treatments because that tells us that the cancer has the capability to invade and can spread, is more likely to spread. Does not always spread, but is more likely to. So then we have to incorporate other treatments um, such as uh, removal of the bladder, sometimes radiation, or um, 
systemic treatments with uh, immunotherapies, chemotherapies, or antibody drug conjugates. I'll talk about what those uh, systemic therapies are in a little more detail at the end. Um, so the and then metastatic uh, disease, or if there's a spots that have spread beyond the bladder to lymph nodes or distant metastatic spots, those are typically treated most often with just systemic therapies. So the standard of care, um, I outlined sort of the superficial cases. Uh, those are typically resected, and depending on whether um, they are high-grade or low-grade dictates what happens next. High-grade tumors and some other factors, like if there was more than one tumor or if a tumor had come back more than once, those can increase risk, and, and those may require treatments in the bladder. Uh, Low-grade tumors or a single isolated tumor that's not invading the inner skin can sometimes just be resected and then followed with surveillance cystoscopies. And, um, and um, so that, that's, those are the standard of care. Now, uh, when those treatments uh, don't work, there are other things that can be tried in the bladder, and there are a lot of investigational um, uh, treatments and things that are being um, studied in clinical trials that are important, that things like putting uh, devices in the bladder that um, release uh, drugs to stop the growth of cancer um, or other uh, medicines that go into the bladder. And um, these are sometimes evaluated in the context of clinical trials uh, for patients who have tried the standard treatments. So what I'm going to try to do, what I've started to do, is sort of describe the standard of care for each setting and then describe certain things that are under development for, uh, in clinical trials that are um, in research right now. The other thing that um, I should mention is some cases, even when it's superficial and not invading into the muscle, uh, if standard treatments in the bladder have not worked, we do sometimes use a systemic immunotherapy that is given by a medical oncologist called Kichuda or pembrolizumab, and that's an IV medication that's often used for advanced cancer, but even in the early stage, uh, it can be used sometimes if, uh, if the other treatments have, have not worked, and there is um, some efficacy of that uh, treatment in that setting. So now let's talk about if it's invading a little deeper. Um, so if it's into the muscle but not yet spread elsewhere, then the standard of care historically has been um, removal of the bladder, cystectomy. And um, that's because we know that that, if left in place, has a higher propensity to spread. So that's a little, um, that's a, a more invasive surgery and does have um, more potential for um, complications and such. But uh, we have to escalate the treatment because the tumor is more aggressive, and, and if we don't, then it has a higher risk of spreading or going elsewhere. In addition, we often add chemotherapy before surgery, and that's been shown that when you give chemotherapy first, followed by surgery, that increases the probability of cure. And in this stage, the treatment is still considered curative. Uh, but um, by giving the chemotherapy up front, there is a uh, reduction in the risk of, um, of the cancer coming back after the surgery. And then also, more recently, the treatment with immunotherapies after surgery, if there is still tumor that was left on the specimen that was removed, um, we often will recommend immunotherapy treatment, which is different than chemotherapy. It's 
works very differently and has fewer side effects, but that's often recommended for up to one year after surgery. And, um, uh, and so th that is the way we maximize the chance of cure, incorporating these other treatments before and after surgery. I would like to mention another approach that is increasingly being considered, <clears throat> and it allows patients to preserve their bladder, and that is to use radiation therapy instead of surgery. That is similarly given with chemotherapy, um, although a, a different type of chemotherapy, uh, usually um, a little bit less intensive chemotherapy, but it combines with radiation therapy that's given on a daily basis, Monday through Friday, um, typically for up to four to six weeks. And the goal there, again, is to eradicate all of the tumors in the bladder. The advantage is you get to keep your bladder. Uh, the disadvantage is it requires ongoing follow-up, including surveillance of the bladder with cystoscopies and CTs. And some patients do ultimately have to have a cystectomy later on, removal of the bladder, if the cancer does recur there. But it is a modality I want to mention in the muscle-invasive stage T2 um, setting that we are using now in selected cases. Now, if it's invading much deeper uh, or spread elsewhere, then we often start with systemic treatments. And it would be um, important to mention uh, this, the standard of care in this setting has changed uh, completely, really, uh, in the last just few months. So this is really kind of hot off the presses. Um, our standard treatment used to be cisplatinum-based chemotherapy. We had used for uh, last 30 years or so with bladder cancer, and that's cisplatinum plus another drug called gemcitabine. These are IV chemotherapies that we've used for many, many years, and, and they do have good efficacy. Uh, but there's a newer combination of treatments that include immunotherapy, and um, that is uh, IV therapies that activate your own immune system to fight cancer. They're what we call immune checkpoint inhibitors. And in brief, the way these work is uh, what we've learned is that tumors can trick the immune system into shutting off by using these proteins called checkpoints that slow down the immune system. Normally, the immune system should find cancer and kill it, but it doesn't because in some cases it's given a signal to turn off. And the immune checkpoint inhibitors, the antibody drugs that we give now, block that signal, and so I describe it as cutting the brakes. They cut the brakes, and the immune system can rev up and fight the cancer. So these newer treatments include one immune therapy called uh, pembrolizumab, uh, although there are others, including nivolumab, sometimes used after surgery, for example. Um, they're similar drugs. Um, but in the advanced setting, we use pembrolizumab now combined with a drug called infortimab-vidotin. Combined together, they work really well. And the second drug I mentioned is what we call an antibody drug conjugate. And what that means is it's essentially a very strong chemotherapy, but rather than just giving it freely into the veins, we it's tethered, it's connected to a antibody that essentially acts like a magnet or a homing mechanism to pull that chemotherapy directly to where the cancer is, because cancers have this protein called Nectin-4. And um, it's not important that you know that name of the protein, but just knowing that that protein is particularly found in cancer and uh, the antibody finds that protein. So it's a homing mechanism that delivers the chemotherapy directly to the cancer, thus having less side effects, though it can have side effects 
still it's uh, generally though it's generally easier than traditional chemotherapy and when you combine it with immunotherapy that is now the new standard of care for advanced disease because it has been shown to improve outcomes clinically long term um, significantly compared with the older chemotherapy regimens we use with cisplatinum. So that's probably the most important update that's occurred in the last few years, and that just received FDA approval um, last month. And so this is pretty new, but uh, this is something that was available on uh, clinical trials that we were um, often giving patients through clinical trials for several years. Again, highlighting the importance of uh, considering clinical trial participation um, because you may have access to these newer treatments even before they're approved. However, this is now standard of care. And so uh, this is available widely, and um, the field has now shifted to giving this first before uh, this is platinum chemotherapy. So I hope I give a good overview of the general um, staging and the treatments. One thing I briefly mentioned but I should come back to for a second uh, before we run out of time is the grading. Uh, grading, there's low grade and high grade. Uh, that's pretty much the dichotomy that we use now. And that is essentially what pathologists see when they look at the tumor under a microscope. It tells us how aggressive the tumor looks. And that's uh, most of the tumors that are invading into the muscle or beyond are high grade. But for the earlier stage, sometimes they can be low grade. And higher grade is more aggressive tumor. It gives us just a piece of information that we use uh, when deciding you know, risk, particularly more important for early stage bladder cancer, um, because most of the more advanced or muscle invasive or deeper are uh, essentially all high grade. So it's less uh, important there. Um, but uh, for the early stage, it's important to, to focus on the grading as well. Um, so, you know, in the context of the, uh, you know, viruses that are circulating in the winter, I think I just also would, should mention that um, I don't want that to be a deterrent for anybody now to follow up if they have, you know, symptoms of bladder cancer or bladder cancer recurrence, such as blood in the urine, pain with urination or difficulty with urination, weight loss, or um, generalized fatigue, uh, or a new pain, you know, anywhere that seems abnormal. There's lots of protocols. All of the medical centers are now using uh, various protocols to minimize the risk of contracting these. We have a vaccination that's available now for all three of these uh, viruses. And so I think with the mitigation of risk, uh, it's safe to, to get um, evaluated for bladder cancer, and I don't want that to be a deterrent for anyone. Uh, we've learned a lot over the last few years about how to, how to mitigate uh, risk, and I, I think um, uh, we don't want um, cancers to be missed that could be treated early. So um, I think I'll, with that, I think I'm coming up on time. So again, I'm happy to answer questions later. But I tried to summarize a lot of information in a short period of time. Hopefully, you found it useful. And thank you for joining. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Swice. That was excellent and a stellar presentation. And you also set the stage for today's program. So I thank you for that. And I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A. And our next speaker um, is uh, Dr. Viknesh. Um, Pakyam, and Dr. Pakyam is Associate Professor of Urology, Onco Urologic Oncology, Director of GU Clinical Unit and Translational Research, Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson University Medical School. And Dr. Pakyam will be addressing diagnostic technologies, genomics, precision medicine, and immunotherapy, 
communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up care, appointments, plans, and discussion of open notes. Um, it's my pleasure now to introduce my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pakiam. Thank you very much for the introduction and the invitation to join this panel. I'm really honored. Um, that's a nice list of things to talk about, but I'll try to hit the high points, and um, we can have time for questions at the very end. Dr. Swice gave a wonderful overview about um, bladder cancer, uh, our current uh, treatment algorithm, and what's new promising uh, updates that are out there, and I'll try to build off of what he said. <clears throat> but, you know, for the first topic of diagnostic technologies, genomics, uh, and precision medicine, Dr. Swice, you know, he nicely outlined our traditional diagnostics, which include imaging, most often CAT scan, although now we're considering the use of MRI and PET scan in certain situations, as well as cystoscopy and resection of the tumor transurethrally. Um, there are some new exciting adjunctive diagnostic technologies that have emerged, which uh, patients may be seeing more and more of that I wanted to touch upon. There are two tests in particular that were approved for Medicare coverage in the last couple of years that we'll be seeing more and more that I think are worth diving into. One of these tests looks at genomics of the tumor, um, and specifically the one that was approved by Medicare was uh, decipher bladder. And this is a test that looks at the molecular classification of tumors via RNA sequencing. The nice thing about this test is that it can actually use the tissue that's already kept by the pathologists from the transurethral resection of the initial tumor and doesn't require any additional biopsies or blood draws. This is a test that's approved for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and muscle invasive bladder cancer, although it's typically um, or it's been studied more so for muscle invasive cancer so far. Um, the results of this test uh, classify tumors as luminal or non-luminal. This nomenclature comes from other cancers such as breast cancer, where, we're, where we've been doing genomic sequencing for you know, decades. Um, now this technology is here for bladder cancer, and it can help uh, guide our treatment decisions so that we can do more precision medicine and kind of tailored treatment for each tumor. And we have some promising retrospective data that shows that this decipher bladder test that does genomic classification can actually predict which types of tumors are more responsive to neoadjuvant chemotherapy that we used to give for everybody before they had uh, bladder removal surgery for muscle invasive bladder cancer. But in the future, we may be doing this in a more selective fashion based on uh, which tumors are most likely to respond to chemotherapy. And similarly, there's some new exciting data showing that um, we can use these genomic classifiers to also predict response to immunotherapy and maybe even some of the other new exciting systemic therapy options that Dr. Swice mentioned. And we're just beginning to start to look at some of these genomic or molecular classifications for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer as well. So I think that's one exciting test to know about. A second test um, that was approved by 
Medicare recently looked at circulating tumor DNA. So we know that regular cells in your body shed fragments of DNA, which is in the nucleus of all cells, and they shed this into the blood. And for bladder cancer specifically, they also shed these into the urine. We know that tumors also shed some fragments of DNA into the blood, and now there are tests that can actually look for these little fragments of DNA. Some of these tests um, look for uh, tumor DNA fragments that are generic and apply to any cancer. Others are specifically tumor-informed. So this test that was approved is called Signaterra, and it was, um, and it's based on uh, a specific tumor. So what they do is they sequence the bladder tumor from the transurethral resection, and then they look for the most common gene mutations that are found there, and then they look inside the blood to see if they can pick up those tumor DNAs. And this can be used before patients get um, a cystectomy for muscle invasive bladder cancer. It can be used while they're getting chemotherapy. And importantly, it can be used after surgery to see if there's any leftover tumor DNA inside the blood to see if patients can benefit from additional treatments such as immunotherapy after surgery. And there was a really exciting study that showed that in patients that don't have any more uh, circulating tumor DNA after surgery, then they um, had pretty good outcomes afterwards, even when they did not get immunotherapy after surgery. Whereas when patients had persistent um, detectable levels of tumor DNA in their blood after surgery, they were more likely to benefit from immunotherapy. So this would you know, allow for more precision medicine in those patients to only give them the treatments that they need based on picking up these um, really minute levels of, of DNA inside the blood. There are more tests that look at specific gene mutations um, that are guiding some of the targeted therapies that are out there. So one gene is called FGFR3, um, and there are some specific uh, medications that target this that can be used to treat cancer that's spread in the body, and it's actually being explored now to look at localized cancer and cancer that's, uh, that has not spread yet. So that's very exciting. Um, for the next topic about communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, this is a really important topic. Um, to be honest, I think it's, it's been under-recognized and um, uh, to some degree that, you know, quality of life has to be talked about more in all stages of, of cancer. Um, in particular, you know, patients with early stage disease there are some new topics that we're learning about, especially with bladder cancer. Um, for instance, you know, there's some morbidity or, or, or complication and side effects that can happen just from the early diagnostics for bladder cancer, like the transurethral resection of bladder tumor. I have a lot of patients that, you know, after their first resection, they say, you know, they're not peeing the same or have the same symptoms that they used to. Um, and that's something that for a long time we just thought was normal from the procedure but now we're starting to do more research to understand why that happens, and more importantly, how we can prevent that from happening. So I think it's really important for patients to, you know, voice their concerns about uh, quality of life changes that they have, um, partially to let their doctors know what's going on, but also so that we know that this is an area to focus on 
um, and that needs more intervention to help. There are questionnaires that are starting to catch on um, that talk, that kind of quantify patient record, reported outcomes. So some of these include the EORTC QLQ or the FACT-BL. Um, these are mostly used in the research setting right now and are being more and more recognized um, as being important parts of cancer care. But, you know, there's, they're questionnaires that could probably be integrated more into regular clinical practice. And if patients are um, kind of vocal about uh, quality of life changes or concerns that they have, that could probably help get these measures integrated, you know, more in a more widespread manner. Um, there are some studies that are looking at quality of life, comparing changes in quality of life from different intravesical therapies for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, but also compare them to changes of life with cystectomy or bladder removal, um, both for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and muscle invasive bladder cancer. So we're definitely going to learn more about this over time, um, but it's something that uh, is really important for there to be good communication between patients and their doctors. And for the final topic, um, guidelines for telehealth, uh, you know, and, and other issues related to that. Um, some of these topics might be better suited for the, for the Q&A, but, you know, in brief, telehealth and telemed really took off during COVID. Um, and I do think that those were some kind of uh, good things that happened as a result to improve access and convenience for patients and physicians. Um, there are many practices that are still utilizing telehealth, even though um, COVID is not um, as much of a direct threat uh, in, in keeping patients out of the doctor's office. Um, some caveats for success for telemedicine visits would be, you know, for patients to make sure you have good internet access, camera, mic. Um, you can ask to record the visits. Um, I have a lot of patients that ask me if they can, you know, record audio or, vi or video during their inpatient appointments just so they can, in or in-person appointments, just so that they can remember what was said and can refer back to it later. And I think for televisits, that's probably um, even easier to integrate in. It's really important to have a, a prepared list of questions. Again, this is something that holds true for in-person visits, but you know, also for telehealth visits, it's so common to, you know, be in a doctor's office visit and not remember a lot of the things that um, people have been thinking about. And uh, if you have a nice checklist of questions, that can be an efficient way both for the patient and for the doctor to kind of go through all the concerns during that visit. And, um, you know, one topic on this list was open notes. I actually don't have any personal experience with open notes, but I looked into it in preparing for this. And it, it does look really interesting and cool. Um, it, it looks like one of the technologies that's out there to communication between the patient and doctor even before the visit and to also help kind of uh, categorize all the concerns ahead of time. So I think that's definitely an interesting new uh, technology that's out there that's going to be used more and more. So um, those are my thoughts about these topics and happy to talk about questions uh, as we move on in the session. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Pakian. That was an excellent presentation. I just um, very well organized and just a lot of material for people um, and presented in a way that I think helps people to understand um, 
some of the newer treatments for um, uh, bladder cancer, so that was really helpful. I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, and uh, yeah, glad to have you um, speaking today. Um, and um, our next uh, speaker is um, Ms. Diana Bairden, and Ms. Bairden is an oncology dietitian, Michael E. DeBakey, VA Medical Center, and she'll be discussing, discussing uh, nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, so nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in your tolerance to treatment, but to provide you the energy to do the things that you enjoy, so your quality of life. Um, during treatment and even after treatment, your diet might be modified. Um, this would be in response to any side effects you could experience during treatment. Every person's an individual and different, so um, staying in connection with your healthcare team throughout your treatment care and your process, communicating any changes are very important so they can help support you as soon as possible um, and, and get those side effects addressed. Now, some potential side effects that can occur, you may or may not experience, but things like mouth sores, diarrhea, constipation, changes in your taste and smell, maybe even nausea or vomiting, possibly a decrease in your appetite, and maybe you may notice that you're more fatigued than usual. But during your course of treatment, your nutritional needs can change. And so being in connection with your dietitian is very important. Whenever you go to your healthcare team, ask them, who are all the members of my team and how do I access them? How do I reach them? A dietitian is a member of the team who can help you with adjusting um, your diet as needed based on side effects, um, any nutritional concerns based on energy needs, weight loss, side effect management. The dietitian can really help support that as it relates to diet. Now, a lot of times, um, you know, one thing that I talk about with patients is, you know, avoiding unintentional weight loss. Um, there's a time and place for weight loss, but when you're going through treatment, we really try to reduce that as much as possible. Um, sometimes people feel like, oh, I have some weight I can lose. It's not a problem. But actually, um, you can become malnourished and still be overweight, you know, per the scale. And so there's a lot to consider. Don't feel like this is the time to lose weight. Oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to have these side effects, I'll get 50 pounds off. This isn't the time for that. One of the things that we encourage with patients is to eat a plant-based diet as tolerated. Now, this type of diet is good for many reasons, but it's recommended in prevention, during treatment, and after treatment. Um, the reason for this is because there's a lot of nutritional um, data um, related to um, how food is very functional, how it helps provide our body the nourishment that it needs as you're going through treatment and beyond. And it also shows information along the lines of anti-inflammatory and prevention um, components of food that we can get from a plant-based diet. Now, what's a plant-based diet? A plant-based diet is where about two-thirds of your plate come from a plant source. These are things like beans, peas, lentils, fruits, vegetables, and then the other portion of your plate coming from a lean protein source. Now, this can also come as a plant 
form. It could be beans, peas, lentils, tofu. Um, it can be um, any of those, but it can also be an animal-based protein. So things like cold water fish, um, things like salmon, tuna, halibut, sardines, mackerel. Those are going to be really beneficial as long as they're wild caught, not farm raised, because they have a lot of anti-inflammatory effects and they're a lean protein. If you choose other proteins like chicken, make sure to choose your white breasted meat as often as possible with any of your poultry, and then your leanest cuts of meat and any other meat that you consume. Now, um, some things to think about. Um, we talk a lot about food and we talk a lot about the side effect management and altering diet, but sometimes we forget about hydration. So hydration becomes very important, especially when you're undergoing treatment. Um, hydration is very powerful. Each person just in general needs about eight to 10 eight ounce glasses of water a day or fluid per day. And when we talk about fluid, it can be things from fruit juice, milk, water, Gatorade, any of those things. Um, and you can even flavor your water and it's still hydrating. But when you become dehydrated, it can actually amplify some of the side effects that you experience. It can make you feel more fatigued. It can make you have headaches and make you feel more nauseated. So it's very important that you stay hydrated. There are medications to assist with some side effects. And what I find with patients sometimes is there's a lot of information given and sometimes it becomes very jumbled and can, a little bit overwhelming. And so always, you know, confirm, am I taking medications correctly? If you're having side effects and you have medication for that side effect, confirm with your healthcare team, am I taking this right? Um, some medications have specific directions and it can really help impact um, your tolerance. So letting your team know the sooner the better. We're here to support you. So in closing, I want to just remind everyone, there are several members of the healthcare team. We're all here for you, and um, we want to help support you as quickly as possible. So please reach out to us um, as you need us, as sooner the better. Um, and in closing, I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Diana. That was a wonderful presentation. Um, I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. I know everyone always gets hungry during these programs, and hearing about what they should be eating is really helpful to people in terms of helping them to figure out what would be best for their, for their diet. So thank you so much, and, and hydration as well. Um, our next speaker is Patricia Rios, and Ms. Rios is Senior Education and Advocacy Manager, Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, and uh, Ms. Rios will be addressing the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN Free Programs and Services, and the Bladder Cancer Support Line, as well as their website. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Rios. Thank you for the introduction and to Cancer Care for putting together this phenomenal program and inviting us, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, or BCAN, to be part and to share information about the free resources we have available. Uh, let me just say that BCAN was founded in 2005, and we are the only national advocacy organization devoted to advancing bladder cancer research and supporting those impacted by the disease. We want those who are listening today to know that no matter the diagnosis or treatment journey, we have the right resources available at Beacon. From information about clinical trials, webinars, printed materials, a designated podcast, or understanding your treatment options, all that can be found at bcan.org, bcan.org, 24-7, seven days a week, 360 days of the year. For those living in the U.S., if you're looking for support, we have a listing of various bladder cancer support groups on our website, 
such as our monthly female focus support group, which meets on the first Tuesday of the month. Our Survivor to Survivor program connects newly diagnosed bladder cancer patients and caregivers with survivors and co-survivors who have gone through similar experiences. Last January, in partnership with Cancer Care, BCAN launched a toll-free support line for bladder cancer patients and their loved ones. The support line is staffed by oncology social workers from the cancer care team who help with emotional, practical, and information needs. Lastly, I want to mention that May is Bladder Cancer Awareness Month, and we encourage everyone who's listening today to get involved by joining us at one of our 15-plus Walk U.S. locations. To find a location near you, log on to our website at bcan.org. If you register today, you'll receive a free Beacon water bottle. Now I'll send it back to you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Juice. That was really excellent, and it's a wonderful resource to everybody um, on this program today. If you're not familiar with the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, please do um, contact them either um, on their support line or website. And also, I should say that you will be all getting a survey monkey evaluation at the end of this program. Well, probably in a couple of days of the program. And in that survey monkey evaluation, you will find. A, um, a listing of all the any resource we gave out. So for for BCAN, for Cancer Care, for anything else that anyone mentioned during the program, and even some additional resources, you all have them. So th- thanks so much. And um, I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm just going to say a few words about uh, Cancer Care's free programs and services. Um, so Cancer Care um, has actually been around for about now 80 years, and actually um, we provide a free support um, given by oncology social workers, master's level trained, and also um, we give a host of services. So what are those services? So many people call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673, and you actually speak with a social worker when you call. They pick up the phone and, they'll, and they're all... Um, scheduled to talk to people at different times, so they'll pick up the phone, and um, so there's no wait time. And um, you'll be able to um, ask a question, um, ask about financial assistance, or we do give both financial assistance and practical assistance. Um, You'll be able to get support or answers to your questions. Um, We also offer online support groups. and we have them on bladder cancer as well. Um, so if you go to our website, www.cancercare.org, you'll be able to see all the different bladder cancer support groups that we're currently offering, um, as well as caregiver support groups as well. Um, and um, we also offer coping circles. We offer these workshops um, and publications and fact sheets as well. So a host of services that you can access from Cancer Care. So, um, and you'll all be getting information about this also um, in the SurveyMonkey evaluation as well. And now we're going to move right on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Regina to explain to all of you how to, how to post your questions online. Regina? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we'll take questions from the web only, and you may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So um, we have quite a few questions here. Um, if a patient has muscle invasive invasion, is there a chance of recurrence after receiving chemo and radiation? 
So, Dr. Swiss. Yeah, I can jump in on that. This is Randy Swiss. Um Yes, there is, there is a, a chance of recurrence, um, though uh, that depends on a lot of factors. Um, the goal is cure in, in this situation. Uh, and so the goal is to, to get rid of this once and for all with the chemo and radiation. And, um, you know, in many cases, that's achieved. Um, the same way the goal with cystectomy or removal of the bladder is, is cure, and in many cases, that's achieved. Now, in both cases, there is a chance that uh, cancer could recur, come back, especially if it was, um, you know, a more advanced uh, stage or, you know, invading even deeper than the muscle or um, has had some pathologic features that made it more aggressive. Now, wh where does it come back if it does, if it does were to come back? And uh, it can be, you know, in general, I think about two places. One is somewhere in the bladder or if in the case of where the bladder was removed in the pelvis, where the bladder was in nearby lymph node or somewhere um, nearby. So that's kind of what I would describe as a local recurrence. Um, in both cases, in, in the case where the bladder is preserved and, and radiation is given, then, um, you know, that can occur within the bladder itself because it's still there. Uh, but even when it's removed, it can occur in the pelvis somewhere, um, let's say, in a, a lymph node that was left behind, for example. The second place is a distant recurrence, and, and that um, is where it can come back, let's say, in the lung or in a, um, in, in a lymph node uh, higher up in the abdomen. And that can happen because there may be microscopic cells that were there in the first place that we didn't see on a scan or that were missing. And so even though the radiation or the surgery approach was very effective at removing the cancer in the bladder and pelvis and it did not come back there, uh, it did not treat the, the disease that was elsewhere. And that's where it can sometimes come back. So no matter how good the radiation is to the bladder or how good the surgeon is at removing the bladder, um, if it has microscopic cells that spread elsewhere, um, then, um, you know, that, that could come back. Uh, so, again, there are ways to predict that risk, and there are some newer technologies, like um, Dr. Packey mentioned, the uh, Signatera test that sometimes can tell us if there's residual cancer floating somewhere in the body that even our scans can't see, that's picking up, micro, you know, tiny, minute amounts of, of, of DNA fragments from the cancer cells. Um, and so sometimes that helps us uh, understand the risk of recurrence. But the short answer is yes, it can come back, but uh, the goal is for that not to happen. And um, in many or even most cases, it does not if it's adequately treated. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and um, a question for Dr. Pecky. Um, do frequent bladder infections indicate a greater possibility of bladder cancer? And are there any preventive measures that can be taken at the early stages of bladder infection? Yeah, that's a great question. There are some types of bladder cancer that can happen when there are chronic urine infections or chronic irritation to the bladder. Um, this subtype is, is usually squamous cell carcinoma. Um, and the usual type of bladder cancer that we get is urothelial car uh, cell carcinoma. Um, I think, you know, that's still something that we're learning more about. Um, you know, we see patients that don't have the traditional risk factors for bladder cancer that, that do develop bladder cancer. So clearly there's more understanding that we need to have. Um, but there, there isn't a clear causal link between, you know, having one or two urinary tract infections and developing bladder cancer in the future. Um, 
you know, one thing that muddies the waters a little bit is that sometimes patients initially present with urinary tract infections that delays the diagnosis of their bladder cancer. So someone may have on and off bleeding and infections that are really coming from their tumor that, um, you know, it's, it's not recognized that uh, uh, bladder cancer is a possibility. And then, you know, they're subsequently diagnosed with bladder cancer. So at least in my practice, um, that's kind of the pattern that I've seen more often than, you know, a uh, direct link between frequent urinary tract infections causing a bladder cancer. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and um, another question from one of our participants, um, along with Signatura, um, Natera also offers Altera for tumor genomic profiles, hence since both tests are available for all bladder cancer patients at Natera, why again is such testing not included in bladder cancer workups uh, for Dr. Um, Swice? Yeah, <clears throat> so they actually perform two different functions in a way, the Altera and Signatera. Uh, Altera, you know, provides a list of mutations that is present in a tumor. And I would argue that that should be standard of care um, for all bladder cancer patients in the advanced setting. It's not necessarily always used for superficial bladder tumors or even muscle invasive bladder tumors, but definitely those who which we're treating with systemic immunotherapies or IV treatments, we uh, typically are getting um, molecular sequencing on the tumor. That gives us the mutations in the, in the tumor. Now, uh, we usually prefer to actually get it from the tumor itself, not from the blood, because it's probably a little more accurate. Um, the blood can pick up mutations, but it can also miss ones because it's harder. It's just harder to detect mutations in the blood compared with taking an actual biopsy tumor material and measuring the mutations there. So when we're trying to determine mutations, I always first go for the um, sequencing the actual tumor biopsy specimen or the TURBT specimen. And if for some reason there is not enough material or if it's hard to get, we can also get the Altera. Signatera, on the other hand, is different uh, in the sense that it's using the, the uh, DNA sequences found from the tumor to measure a value, and that kind of tells us whether there is actual disease present in the body somewhere. And so that's used more of a marker of the overall disease status. Uh, whether it goes down, that means the cancer is shrinking or has been, treating, been treated. If it goes up, we have concern that it's come back, say, for example, after surgery. So that's used as sort of a measure of the level of cancer in the body. And there's still, you know, that's useful actually in some circumstances, but I think we got to be careful and not use that in areas where it's not been studied carefully because sometimes it could be misleading if it's misused. But that's a different purpose than the Altera, which is getting the mutations. And I prefer to get the mutations actually from a tumor biopsy, uh, which is, a, a and that test can be done by a number of different um, companies um, under different names, the tumor biopsy testing uh, for molecular sequencing. At, at my institution, we do it in-house at our own lab, uh, and we get our sequencing here, but other places, they send it out to other companies, and there's many of which I won't list that all provide a, a comprehensive genomic sequencing of hundreds of different genes that we know are prevalent in, in cancer. Hopefully that is uh, clear because it can be confusing. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and for Dr. Pacquiam, um, are there any bladder cancers that are genetic? And having had previous cancer chemotherapies, 
and that predispose one to bladder cancer? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there isn't a strong uh, genetic link to bladder cancer. I mean, it's probably less than 5% of patients that have a um, family history of bladder cancer that, that develop bladder cancer themselves. There are some syndromes that cause um, urothelial carcinoma in the upper tract. Um, one of those is called Lynch syndrome, and that can be associated with a variety of other cancers, um, most notably colorectal cancer. Um, and there are some situations where patients with Lynch syndrome also have some cancer that comes in the bladder. Um, but for the most part, this is not uh, one of the cancers with a strong kind of genetic uh, uh, predisposition. And I'm sorry, the second question? Um, okay, having had previous cancer chemotherapies can predispose one to bladder cancer. So for different cancers, just having had chemotherapies. Yeah, that's also a really good question. Um, there are patients that get chemotherapy earlier in their lives, you know, due to childhood cancers or, or um, uh, other diseases. Um, and they have associated some types of cancers with uh, early chemotherapy, like lymphoma and some GI cancers, but there isn't a direct link to my knowledge that um, correlates these with future bladder cancer. Um, there is some somewhat controversial data suggesting that radiation in the pelvis for cancers such as um, rectal cancer can cause uh, future bladder cancer, but um, this is probably a relatively small effect and something that we're still studying. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I just want to let everybody know that we do have um, a second part to this program. Um, this part two is, uh, will take place ne next week, actually, January 31st, for caregivers' practical tips to cope with a loved one's bladder cancer. It'll be from uh, uh, 1, 1 10 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern time on January 31st. So, um, and then I'm going to ask each of our speakers just to provide a takeaway um, from today's program. I'm going to start with Dr. Swice, then Dr. Pakiam, Ms. Bearden, and Ms. Rios. So, um, and just a, like a minute takeaway. Dr. Swice, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, um, as I mentioned, I tried to summarize so much information um, in such a short time. Uh, I would have two points to close with. One is, uh, please, uh, if you're not clear, if you get a diagnosis or if you're talking to a doctor and something isn't clear, uh, ask questions, write them down before your visit, um, you know, demand answers if you're not getting them or get a second opinion if it's not clear because you really need to understand what is being recommended and why. And um, there's so much happening that's new that, um, you, you know, that, that it's all the more reason to be up to speed on, on, on what's available. Um, and secondly, you know, with some of the newer treatments, the field has moved incredibly rapidly from just even five years ago. The treatments in everything from early stage to advanced stage have changed so much that, again, um, consider clinical trials and, you know, you may get the next uh, generation of therapies that, uh, you know, isn't available to everybody um, for several years from now. So we're always rapidly evolving and uh, you, uh, and even if you participate, and, and trials are designed in such a way that you know, you never get less than the standard of care. So if there's a standard of care, you're getting it maybe plus or minus the new thing. Um, and so you're not missing out on anything. You're usually getting something that has a potential to be better. 
And even if it's not better, then you've contributed to that knowledge and you've moved the field forward without, you know, missing out on the treatment you would have had. So, um, you know, treatments don't typically involve placebos unless the standard of care is to just do surveillance or observation. So you're not, you know, you're, again, you're not getting less than the standard of care ever in a, an appropriately designed clinical trial. So encourage, ask questions of your doctors and, uh, and um, participate in clinical trials whenever available. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Dr. Pacquiam? Yeah, that, that's a really um, great point that Dr. Swice makes. And I know we hit upon a lot of the um, uh, kind of nuts and bolts of the actual grade stage treatment of cancer. Um, but I, I really believe that quality of life is going to become more in the forefront of what we're looking at and what we're doing. You know, we have more and more treatments available to us now than ever. Um, and in the near future, we're going to have even more. Um, and then the next step will be to personalize, you know, not only how effective these treatments are, but how they impact quality of life. So really important for patients to have good communication with their doctors about um, the quality of life and the changes that they're having with all their treatments. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Ms. Bearden? Um, I just want to encourage people to know their healthcare team and how to access them, know the members of your healthcare team and what they um, what their service can be for you. Um, and just realizing that the sooner you let your healthcare team, you know, you have an issue, the better. Um, communication um, is so essential. And although we know generally what happens with patients throughout treatment, um, if, you know, a patient isn't asked a question, it doesn't mean that what they're experiencing isn't important. It may just mean that um, the practitioner was just overlooked it or, you know, just wasn't brought up in the conversation. So um, just having um, that communication um, always open and, again, sooner the better. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Ms. Rios? Yes. So we would like us our cancer community to know that they're not alone. Um, we know this journey can often um, feel like there's there's nobody else out there or it's, it's very overwhelming. And so the bladder cancer advocacy is there. And we have a lot of tons of tons of resources on our website. And we want to ask um, everyone to, to log on to the website, bcan.org, and, and browse the resources. Um, if the information um, is not there, you can't find it. Our uh, phone number, our email is there. Reach out to us, and we'll do our very best to connect you to the information you need. Oh, thank you so much. And I just want to say that the next program actually is on January 31st, um, and it's for caregivers practical tips to cope with a loved one's bladder cancer, and it's from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern time um, next week. So please do, um, if you haven't signed up for it, please do. Now, I do want to um, say a few words about, about the fact that we couldn't take every question that was in queue. Um, that, um, I, I, I want to actually acknowledge that up front. And, I, I, and I, I want to reiterate what Ms. Rio said, that we don't want anyone to leave this program to only you're alone. So we want you to, for those of you who asked a question, for those who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who um, um, you know, are, are thinking of a question, please go back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best. And remember, your healthcare team consists of a lot of people. Of course, your oncologist is there. Um, the urologist is there, oncology nurse, social worker, oncology nurse, um, patient navigator, financial navigator, 
um, just a host of people who can help you. So if you bring a question to your healthcare team, they often can help you to begin with. But then you also have uh, the Butter Cancer Advocacy Network and you have Cancer Care as well. Um, so although it is, of course, people often feel alone, we want you to know that you're now part of a community of support and we are here, of course, to help you. Um, and we'll, you'll be given at the, um, in a couple of days a survey monkey evaluation and you'll be getting all of the resources that we mentioned that you can contact. Again, we don't want any one of you to feel that you are um, alone in, in coping with, um, with bladder cancer, any type of cancer. We want you to know that there's a whole group of organizations out there, including and your healthcare team, of course. Also, in terms of your healthcare team, always check with them um, in terms of evenings, uh, weekends, and holidays. It seems like those are the times that people seem to have questions and they need to know who to call, who's on call that time. So you want to check with your healthcare team about when you can reach them during evenings, weekends, and holidays. That's really important as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I look forward to being on the call next week, for the caregivers on the call, even for people who are living with bladder cancer who want to have more of a sense of what, um, what some of the caregiving issues are. I want to thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.